Welcome to the EO Podcast with Brett Kiesling, part of the EO Podcast Network. Hello, my friends. Thanks for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. In February of 2023, I talked about a really cool online course, the first of its kind that's been launched by the Rutgers Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. The instructors were Dr. Adria Scharf and Joseph Blasi, who've done so much in the employee ownership space. We have talked about Adria Scharf and her work as the director of the Curriculum Library for Employee Ownership, or CLIO, and she's also an associate director of the Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing, and I am so happy to welcome Adria Scharf to the podcast. Adria, how are you today? Doing great, Brett. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And folks will also remember, and I've talked about this several times on the podcast, you gave the keynote at the NCEO National Conference in the spring of 2022 and just did a wonderful job of motivating and getting enthusiasm out of the more than 1,500 people who were there and also those who watched it online. So you are in a lot of different places in employee ownership. Thank you, Brett. I was honored to be with the NCEO. So we've got a lot of stuff we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the Coursera course, which is first of its kind, and it's so exciting that it's out there in the space. We want to talk a little bit about Clio, and we want to talk about whatever you would like to talk about. But Adria, as you know, we like to start each podcast with having our guests share their EO aha moment. It's not the moment they first heard about employee ownership or kind of liked it, but it's the moment where they heard or learned something that made them go, aha. This could be transformative. And I'm wondering if you've had an aha moment or two you'd like to share. Brett, thank you. I'm I'm such a fan of your podcast and I'm such a fan of this question. And I, I was thinking about it. And I, I think my first aha moment was more an intellectual moment related to my research. But that kind of intellectual research-informed aha moment has really grown in its meaning for me over time. So it's sort of a an initial aha moment that has ripened with age and taken on even more meaning over the years. But I, I did the, the research for what I believe was the very first study ever conducted on the wealth and wage impact of ESOPs for workers. And this was many years ago. I was still in graduate school and we compared ESOP companies in Washington state to a group of similar companies that were matched based on industry and size. And we found definitively that the employees in the ESOP companies had far substantially more retirement wealth than employees in the competitor firms. And secondly, we found that that the ESOP employees also had higher wages. And we kind of looked at particular percentiles within the companies and we found that even the, the lowest wage workers seemed to have higher wages compared to similar other non-ESOP companies. And so that was kind of one of the first real kernels of hard evidence about the wealth building potential of ESOPs for workers. And those findings on ESOPs and wealth have been, you know, affirmed and expanded on and improved on by the work of many different researchers in the years since. And very importantly, newer research is looking in a more targeted way at the financial well-being of workers of color and women workers and low-wage workers, workers from historically excluded groups in a way that is important and more of that sort of research is needed. But I'd say that my aha moment came as a very young graduate student collecting real hard data on wealth and wages in ESOP companies in Washington state. And it was an aha moment 
when I just looked at the numbers and looked at how real and tangible the financial benefits could be, at least on average. And when I said that the insight has grown in meaning over the years, in, in part that's in the sense that my own research continued, but it's also more personally, as I've done alongside my research and writing, I've done a good deal of, of work in community and have really you know, witness firsthand just the crisis of what I would call wealthlessness. I see it in my community every day. I know from personal connections what it means not to have a cushion, not to have wealth in a society that doesn't have a lot in the way of a safety net. And in the United States, you really have to have a cushion of some financial assets in order to just be safe and take care of your family. And so I have witnessed firsthand the real economic insecurity that people, even working people, can feel. I love a lot of different things about what you've just said. And I've collected, I think, around 100 of the aha moments since we started in the fall of 2020. And there are some who, like me, and I was an ESOP trustee for seven years and started the podcast while I was working as a trustee, who loved employee ownership and it was a great way to earn a living. And somewhere along the line, I came to realize that employee ownership was addressing some of the things that were very important to me and wealth inequality and wage inequality. And, you know, I've said many, many times, the first thing that I started to notice was more of a pay parity between men and women, although I find it freaking ridiculous that there is still any inequities between men and women and, and, you know, Caucasian and people of color, but employee ownership does better. You know, it's just my way of acknowledging we're not perfect, but it does better. And then there are folks, and I'm not quite sure if you're, if you're in this bucket, but it sounds a little bit like who actually, there were a number of things in society that were already important to them. And they realized kind of the mirror image of, of where I came from of, Hey, I am, these are the things that are important to me. Wait a second. Employee ownership is addressing them. Does that make sense? It does. No, I think I think that does make sense. And yes, I probably fall a bit more into the latter bucket. Let me also tell you, and I love the fact that you come from the research background, because one of the things that I've noticed during the podcast, and I really enjoy it, there are a bunch of anecdotes that the practitioners will talk about as they want to land clients or service clients, and they'll say, hey, employee ownership does this, that, or the other thing. And the researchers are the ones providing the data. You know, we can look at your colleague, Dr. Blasey, and, and so, Dr. Cruz, and so many others at, at Rutgers have done such important work. And we're able to say, hey, I'm telling you this as a trustee, as a lawyer, as a valuation advisor, as a culture and communications person, and here's the data to back it up. And then there are also times where we know working with the companies that things anecdotally are true. And for example, we anecdotally, the practitioners knew that there weren't really many layoffs during the pandemic at employee-owned companies. And then at a certain point, the research catches up with the anecdotes. So I think there's just such a great synergy in employee ownership between the work that the researchers do and that data and the real life experiences of the practitioners. It's so true. It is so true. And it, at the Institute, you know, we are, we are really good at kind of the big data analysis and we, we host and are very experienced in analyzing a number of large data sets. I will add to that, though, that in some of my own research, I've had the opportunity to do the qualitative side, so to do the in-depth interviews. And I guess I would say that there's such a power in 
the synergy between the large data analysis and those stories, some of which you've heard anecdotally from service professionals, and some of which I've heard, you know, in my qualitative research, but there can be a real power when there's a synergy between those two. I remember just a year or so ago, I was doing interviews for a set of case studies of ESOP companies and had the opportunity to interview some workers and was just, you know, I had done all of this statistical analysis of the impact of financial wealth accumulation for workers, but it was really when I had this conversation, a qualitative research interview with an employee of a supermarket, her name was Celeste, and just, you know, asked her a series of structured questions. And she shared with me in the context of that interview you know, that she had worked her way up from being a clerk at the cash register. Her previous job was at Kmart. She had a high school degree, four grandchildren. She was planning to retire in just a few years. And when I asked her what she cared most about when it came to the ESOP, she said something like, you know, I know I should talk about like the culture and I really feel like an owner. She was like, but honestly, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's I'm looking ahead to three or four years when I'm going to retire and I have so much more retirement security. I I know that I'm going to be able to be okay in retirement and take care of my grandkids. And it just, you know, it added, the stories add so much flesh to the, to the statistics. Well, Adria, I can share with you that not only do I collect the EO aha moments, but when we started the owner to owner podcast with Jesse Tyler and Jesse is a 16 year employee at Hypertherm and he only talks to employee owners. That's the hence the owner to owner because I wanted to have more rank and file employee owners on the podcast, but there's more credit. You know, I am not an employee owner. I was CEO of an employee owned company for a couple of years, 2009, 2011, but I was looking for someone and Jesse Tyler is just absolutely wonderful. And he, his podcast, the owner donor podcast, and I hope people will check it out if they haven't already. Generally, he'll have two to three guests from either the same employee owned company or, or representing several different ones. And he ends his podcast with the EO aha moment. And I probably say 90, 95% of his guests, their EO aha moment is when they got their statement. And to me, what that reinforces, and, and I think that's absolutely great. But a number of us are involved in employee ownership for very valid but kind of big picture reasons. And it's a nice reminder that this isn't philosophical. ESOPs particularly, worker co-ops a little bit different, but ESOPs particularly, cut it all away. As you know, it's a retirement plan. It should be what resonates with lots of people. So I'm not surprised at all that you were talking to uh, someone who worked for a grocery because this is bringing it down to that truly micro level of, you know, it is their lives, it is their retirement. And then all the other things, the, the sense of purpose, the sense of being part of something that matters and, you know, the pride of ownership that we talk about quite a bit. But for a lot of employee owners, it really is the balance is going up, the wage and the wealth inequality. And in the context of the kind of stagnant wages and the wealth gap that we all know about so well, it is it is real and it is important and it is meaningful to people's actual survival and their actual lives and their ability to take care of their kids. So let's, if we can, let's pivot to the online course you put out and it's absolutely wonderful. And I audited some of the sessions. I haven't taken the whole course, but there's a great online EO course. It's the first of its kind, I think, in the world. We will have the link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as, you know, if we've talked about some of the other stuff, my team puts together pretty good links, so we will include it. <laughs> but people can come on and they can just take the course 
and it's free, or for a, a bit of a fee, they can get a certification that they have taken and completed the course. So tell us about the course. It's, thank you. It is, it's called Our Share Employee Ownership as a Wealth Sharing Tool. And we just launched it at the beginning of this year, 2023. And it is the Institute's first, what they call massive open online course. In other words, a big digital video-based course designed for the mass public. The first MOOC that the Institute has offered. And it was, in fact, the very first course focused on employee ownership to even be made available from the Coursera platform, which is the largest MOOC platform in the world. And I designed it, but it was, in fact, very much a collective effort. And it includes video segments by 15 different people. And really, my aim was to make this course accessible to anyone. So I, I wanted it to be an introduction to employee ownership that would be accessible for people who have no background knowledge whatsoever. I wanted to be able to introduce the idea, the concept of employee ownership to a quote unquote regular worker or community member or business owner or a student and to introduce them to the concept of employee ownership, introduce them to primary different types. We focus on four different types of employee ownership in the course, ESOPs, worker cooperatives, equity compensation, and employee ownership trusts. And in addition to leaving people with a conceptual understanding, my goal was to actually give people who take the course enough kind of real world practical information that they kind of get the process started. So if anybody taking the course is actually interested in establishing an employee-owned company, starting one up or converting one, they will at least know the primary questions to ask, kind of the overall steps in the process of a startup or conversion. And then we direct them to lots of other wonderful, trusted partner and friendly organizations for people who want more, more actual assistance. But our hope is that our Coursera course will both give folks a conceptual introduction and give them enough kind of concrete handles that they will know what next steps to take if they want to build employee ownership out in the world. Adria, I know that there's a lot that has gone into this course. Like I said, I've I've audited, if you will, a couple of the segments, but why don't you tell us about how the structure, how the format is? Sure. Thank you. It's, it's structured into four modules, which correspond theoretically with weeks, although learners, the students can self-pace. So someone could certainly do it more quickly or more slowly, but the, the four big kind of chunks or modules are the first is, is a module called what is employee ownership, which again is a introduction geared to someone really who has no background knowledge. We start from the question of how does business ownership usually work, you know, and where do employees usually fit when it comes to business owners? And then what makes an employee-owned company different from a traditionally owned company? After the what is employee ownership module, we have a module called employee ownership types and traditions, which is where we introduce several different specific forms of employee ownership. And then we have a really beautiful section on kind of the historical roots of employee ownership in American society, in which we have both Dr. Joseph Blasey, who of course was co-author of the definitive book, The Citizen's Share, that traces this idea of shared ownership or capital sharing back to some of the ideas of the founding fathers of, of the country. We also have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nemhard, who is the leading scholar of the Black cooperative tradition, who talks 
in depth about the importance of cooperative forms of ownership to Black community economic survival. And so we have these kind of two intertwined presentations that show how the roots of this concept of worker ownership are not fringe. They are, they are deeply embedded in multiple different traditions within our history and our society. After types and traditions, we have a, a module on research where we have a bunch of short segments highlighting in really simple and accessible language, and some of the key conclusions that research has shown over the years in terms of the impact of employee ownership on a number of different important outcomes. And then finally, we have a module that I called Why and How We Became Employee-Owned, where we have the co-founder of an ESOP company and the co-founder of a worker cooperative really walk students through what the process was for them, what questions they asked, how they went about implementing their worker cooperative or ESOP and was grateful to have Tracy Till as the co-founder of an ESOP company, Butler Till, and Jarrett Schloff, who is the co-founder of a, a worker cooperative called Pingree Detroit, really kind of shepherd us through and share their stories with us in a way that is just, I think, really helpful. Tracy Till is such an inspiring leader. I was fortunate enough to have her on the podcast a year or two ago. Time kind of flies. And we were actually talking about the importance of independent board directors, which Tracy is, is very much passionate about. But Butler Till checks off so many boxes of just, first of all, just a cool company. Second of all, women founded, women run, et cetera, et cetera. I still, I, I understand they are still considered women owned, although for me, that designation gets a little bit tough in my brain because they're employee owned. So I'm not quite sure how the certification work, but they're involved with the B Corp field and just Tracy and her partner, Sue Butler, have just created such a special organization. And it's so cool that Tracy is one of these people that keeps giving back to the EO community. She is. And she's such a great communicator. And so, yeah, just so dynamic. I, I had her, invited her to come speak to a, a class I taught last year at Rutgers. And the students were pretty bowled over by just by her. And it's also a testament to both of their leadership and planning, the two co-founders that the business is continuing to thrive even years after they have now sort of stepped away and left it into the next generation's hands. And thrive is the right word. They, I mean, I can't even tr keep track. In the last year or so, they've built beautiful new headquarters in, in Rochester, which is, and again, it's that EO vibe where there are so many different moving parts that that has helped maintain the renaissance of downtown Rochester. And it's an important part of that. And they regularly get awards for their leadership in both marketing, you know, their field, et cetera, et cetera, and employee ownership. So that speaks to the sustainability of employee ownership that is so important, I know, for the practitioners, and you have research as well that has talked about it, where somebody has built a company or a couple of partners have built a company and they reach the point in their life or their careers of what do they do with it. And they can sell for a big check to a competitor that will probably dismantle their company, or they can find a way to perpetuate their own legacies and give a brand new legacy through employee ownership. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've interviewed a number of different retired business owners who opted to sell their shares to the ESOP and sell their companies to the employees through the ESOP and have had an opportunity to ask in my research, several retired business owners sort of like, in retrospect, like, why did they make that choice? And looking back in retrospect, was it the right choice? And 
what made it the right choice for them. And I have been struck that for many of them, clearly the tax benefits and the kind of the dollar signs were a factor, but for so many of them that those questions that you just identified, the questions of what will happen to my employees who helped me build this company, the questions of what will make me feel best in my retirement about my decision as somebody who thinks of myself as a conscientious business owner. So many retired business owners who chose to sell to the ESOP spoke a lot about their values and the importance of caring for their former employees on par with their need to actually, you know, cash out their shares. Absolutely. And and the getting liquidity, whether they are selling out and ready to retire or whether they are still planning to be with the business for quite some time, but just want access to the liquidity that they've built up or some of the equity that they have built up, it becomes very powerful. So Adria, you are a Beister fellow at Rutgers and there can be some confusion and that's my <laughs> humble little way of saying, I was actually confused when I saw Beister, I assumed that it was through the Beister Institute, which is actually on the West Coast and they do a great job as well. But it turns out the Beister family just really loves employee ownership and has endowed and, and supported a lot of different things. So the Beister fellow is through Rutgers. Correct. Correct. And in fact, yes, the Marianne Beister and the Beister family has been incredibly generous and has planted seeds all over the country that continue to bloom in the employee ownership space. But yes, the Beister family does support even endowed fellowship for scholars. And in addition, I believe they underwrote a professorship that is part of the Institute. So Joseph Blasey is the J. Robert Beister Distinguished Professor at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations in his role as director of the Institute. In fact, Marianne Beister also supported my development of this video course as one of many different projects that she's supported. So they do big picture support in a number of different ways. And then she actually got hands-on with your curriculum as well? Yes, yes, yes. That yeah, is very cool. Not, yeah. Not in an editorial role, but in terms of wanting to see, actually, the segues to Clio, because in fact, the Beister family was a very early supporter of the Curriculum Library for Employee Ownership back before it even arrived at Rutgers. It was housed within the Aspen Institute. And I wasn't, this is way before my time, so I'm not clear on all the details, but I know that the Beister family was a supporter of the development of this on-site web space that was intended to house case studies and different teaching resources about employee ownership. And this idea of the Coursera course really came out of my desire to lift up and make more visible this idea about employee ownership. And I direct the Clio website that is now housed at Rutgers. It's a Again, it's the largest online library of teaching and research materials about employee ownership. And it, it has a wide reach. A lot of people do use Clio, but I just kept wanting to have some tool to kind of reach beyond, reach beyond the existing circle of people, either with a direct interest in employee ownership or and even beyond people who have sort of an adjacent interest, you know, like. And so my my Coursera course was an attempt to kind of like to break out and see if we could reach, again, reach beyond. And I think the jury's still out about how well it succeeded, but it was an attempt. And yes, Marianne Beister has been a supporter of both of those projects, Clio, the Coursera course, and many others as well. Well, first of all, the, the Coursera course is 
successful because you have opened up a new avenue for online learning. And I have a lot of respect for what you did. And it's one of those things that will have some legs for some time yet. So the other thing is Clio is such an important resource, but even its name kind of speaks to academia and the curriculum library. The Coursera is a really cool way to to kind of bring it to that retail level of it's available for anybody that I yeah. think is, is just such an important step. That was the goal. Thank you. So why don't you tell us about some of the resources or tell us about Clio? About Clio, sure. Clio, it, so the, the URL for Clio is just clio.rutgers.edu, and it is free publicly available online library with a ton. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different resources and links to resources about employee ownership. It was designed with the primary audience in mind being teaching faculty. So we did want to create with this library sort of a hub for resources where professors, including business school professors, could easily access case studies and articles and examples of syllabi that they could then adopt in their own classes. Because anyone who's part of the employee ownership space probably shares my feeling and our feeling that we want to see the idea of employee ownership introduced and taught much more widely at the college and university level, including in traditional business school classes. So my, my goal with Clio is to create a hub of resources that will be used widely by professors, including business school professors. That said, however, in practice, the website is used by lots of different types of people, not only professors, but policymakers, business owners, workers, advocates, et cetera. There's lots of information on there for almost anybody. So I encourage folks to check it out if they haven't yet done so. From the homepage, there are these icons where it's very easy if you want to just click through, you know, there's a case studies icon and you can just click there and find a large set of free, fully downloadable case studies of, of worker-owned companies. There's also an icon that links to the re most recent important policy reports related to employee ownership. And then there's there's a much kind of deeper searchable database. So if you want to hone into something on something really specific, you can type in keywords into the search bar or you can click on advanced search and then you can like click if you're looking for like, you know, I don't know, a journal article focused on compensation in Europe related to worker cooperatives or something like that. You can hone in on multiple different search filters to kind of really zero in on exactly what you want. So it's a living, breathing, dynamic resource that we're constantly adding to. I also invite folks, if there's something you expected to find on Clio and you go in there and you find it's missing, please shoot me an email. We are constantly adding and expanding the collection with the intention of just making it as usable and helpful to as many people as possible. I love that. And you made reference a few minutes ago to folks who are in an adjacent space to employee ownership. And I often come across folks who are advocates for whether it's communities or whether it's wealth building or wage inequality and that sort of thing. And we'll often send them a link to the study that was funded by Kellogg Foundation on the racial inequalities. It's an example of just amazing kind of exhaustive research that that just goes so deep and just shows the advantages that, that employee ownership can bring to our communities and, and our world. 
It's so true. It's a, it's a tool that is flexible or multi-purpose in the sense that it it speaks to so many different important critical ongoing discussions happening in our society as you said between conversations about community economic stability and the racial wealth gap and retirement security and the absence of a sense of belonging in the workplace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The laundry list goes on and on. But yes, I think that's beautiful that you are connecting folks with such different concerns back to this idea. And it's not that employee ownership is the sole panacea for all of these issues, but it's a it's a well-tested, well-researched, evidence-based solution that is politically possible here and now, and that if it's scaled up, it could have a measurable impact on any number of these different outcomes that we all care about. So do me a favor and let's take a, a little step back and talk about the Institute more broadly. You have a number of programs, you have a number of Beister Fellows. Maybe we, we, we start with that. I know that I think it's just in the last month or so I saw that Rutgers announced a new class of fellows at the Institute. So if you can just Tell us a little bit about the Institute more broadly. Sure, absolutely. The Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing is housed within the Rutgers University's School of Management and Labor Relations, and it is the world's largest academic institute focused on these issues. It produces and authors and publishes a tremendous amount of research, and it maintains a lot of the kind of big data infrastructure that enables the study of employee ownership with a number of different large databases, as well as sponsoring a lot of important qualitative research. And I think we often lead with that, with kind of our research output, which is very important. But I really love that you led with the research fellows, which I think is equally important. We at the Institute, I think both through the fellowship program and through the annual conferences are just one important part of kind of the ecosystem of supports for employee ownership, understanding, and research. The research fellowship is really extraordinary. It normally grants between 20 to 30 fellowships over the course of a given year. And over the years, my understanding from Dr. Joseph Blasey is that the Institute has given more than 200 named fellowships out. And the funded fellowships support a tremendous amount of research, and they've helped to kind of nurture the next generation of diverse scholars who are going to kind of carry on the torch, many of them, and continue studies and asking critical questions and deepening our understanding about these important tools. And the fellows get invited to attend the Institute's two annual conferences. One is called the Kelso Workshop, which takes place in New Brunswick in January. And the other historically has been the Beister Institute, which has taken place in California. And these two annual conferences have really provided an important kind of convening space for people from lots of different ideological perspectives, lots of different disciplinary perspectives, people concerned about grassroots forms of worker cooperatives, and people concerned about equity sharing on Wall Street, like all within the same incredibly diverse ideological tent for exchange of ideas. And I know just anecdotally, there have been countless, countless different partnerships, collaborations, and projects that have kind of like sprung out of this fertile ground that the Institute has created with its different conferences. And in part, thanks to the support it's given to its fellows. I love the fact that having followed you folks for, you know, a, a number of years now through employee ownership, and I think you touched upon this, but 
there are folks across the spectrum of employee ownership and across political ideologies where it doesn't matter what organization you might be affiliated with, that there's participation in Rutgers. It doesn't matter. You know, frankly, one of the things that, that, that I love the most about employee ownership is that at a time when our society is as divided, I almost said as divided as it could get, and I try not to say things like that because then it gets even more divided. But, you know, I love the fact where I am disheartened by the tone and tenor of American discourse these days, and employee ownership allows me to sidestep you know, a lot of the examples. Bernie Sanders is probably legitimately the the strongest supporter historically of employee ownership in terms of political leaders. But Ron Johnson, who is an extremely conservative Republican senator from Wisconsin, also supports employee ownership. And if we can get these two people talking about an issue, although they talk about it in different ways, but employee ownership as a whole grows. And Rutgers really seems to do a very good job of bringing different ideologies and 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 people together and keeping them focused on employee ownership and not on the issues that might blow us apart. I think it 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 is a very a very ideologically mixed group and I would just not necessarily disagree with you, but just add to that, which is to say that like the issues of, you know, the issues of our racial divides and inequities, it's not that introducing employee ownership will solve all of those things within a company. And in fact, if we drill down and look within individual companies or within the population of employee owners, we do find persistent racial and gender inequities that still exist. That said, if you compare, you know, a female worker of color in an employee-owned company to a similar individual out in the world in kind of a national baseline comparison, it, you normally find that people within the employee ownership structure have accumulated far more wealth and have benefited in a number of ways that other folks outside of an employee ownership structure have not. And I would just say that, yes, the idea of employee ownership can be an idea that transcends traditional political ideologies. And I would also say that we within the employee ownership space shouldn't be afraid of still like taking a hard look at even doing better within our own spaces as spaces that we say are spaces of shared ownership and spaces that we say value a degree of economic equity. We should be the first within kind of the economy to be taking a hard look at our own organizations to make sure that we are taking the next step of breaking down the gender and racial barriers that still exist in every corner of American society and employee-owned companies are not immune. None of us are. No, you're exactly correct. And I certainly hope I didn't imply no, that, you didn't. that I thought that things were solved, but rather that things are better. Although, you know, I guess that is in the eye of the beholder. I do think that there are certain, you know, first of all, and it's kind of funny, I don't, I intentionally on the podcast decided that this wouldn't be, and and this is, yeah, the podcast started in 2017, that I wasn't really interested in political discussions, because it would take away the message from employee ownership. But that said, I don't think you need to be much of a brain surgeon. You know, when I say things like, you know, and I'll post this on social media from time to time in employee ownership month, we means we, no exceptions. Right. 
tends to give a that. vibe, <laughs> you know, I yeah. where I stand yeah. on the Thank uh, you. Yes, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> spectrum. So let me ask this and let me switch back to the Coursera course and for just a moment, because you did say something that surprised me a little bit. When you talked about the four prongs of employee ownership and you went on to explain them, I was like, four? I thought there were three. And you included the equity options. And am I correct to assume that they've got to be broad-based equity options? Like if you're just giving equity options to the top three people at the company, that's not who you're talking about. Thank you for pointing that out. A hundred percent, yes. With equity compensation, sometimes it's designed just as compensation for senior management or for select, you know, highly desired, you know, employees. But absolutely, we make clear in the uh, Coursera course that when we talk about equity compensation, we are talking about broad-based forms of equity compensation. And with most forms of equity compensation, for example, stock options, employers can choose to make them broad-based. They often don't, but they can choose to make them broad-based. And so, yes, we are talking about broad-based equity compensation. And in the course, while we review four different types of employee ownership, we really dive down in into most depth with ESOPs and worker cooperatives. So we kind of lay out the whole spectrum and then we do the deep dive into employee stock ownership plans and worker cooperatives. That makes sense. So for the equity options, that would be, for example, the work that, that Ownership Works is doing and where they're, it's kind of a private equity take on employee ownership? That's or, or am a I different, not right? No, thank you. That's a different concept with, I'm not speaking for Ownership works, but private equity can invest in conversions to ESOPs. They sometimes don't, but, but they can. When I talk about equity compensation, I'm talking about things like restricted stock units, which are basically stock grants mm-hmm. and stock options. And, and those types of tools are often found in Silicon Valley and fintech and kind of higher tech sectors. And then in addition, there's something called the employee stock purchase plan, which is very common on Wall Street with publicly traded companies, which unlike an ESOP, which is kind of an automatic benefit paid for by the company that's re- that must by law cover most of the individuals on your payroll, with an employee stock purchase plan, by contrast, it's an optional opportunity for employees to purchase stock, usually at a discount. It's almost like a 401k. They can take money out of their paycheck on a regular basis and set it aside to purchase stock at sometimes quite a steep discount. So that it's it's usually a really good deal and a wealth building opportunity for employees. And often ESPPs are broad-based in the sense that they're made available to the majority of employees within a large company. However, the percentage of employees who actually participate sometimes is smaller. And again, it's very different in terms of its character and its quality from an ESOP. It's a short-term stockholding arrangement. And again, it's a form of stock ownership that requires employees to set money aside out of their own paychecks, unlike normally in an ESOP. Brett, I I learned in this interview from you that you used to be a trustee. I didn't I didn't realize that. I, I wanted to share that I am just starting in on a new research project, and it's going to be a study looking at why don't more business owners opt to adopt an ESOP. So why is it the case that business owners, even those who are informed about an ESOP, and even business owners that we in the kind of employee ownership world think are highly ESOPable companies, why do so many of them not opt for ESOP? And I will soon be looking for a number of people to do some initial interviews with. So I may be reaching out to you to just see if you have any insights to lend as I'm 
setting off on exploring this very important question that I think really is critical to the future. To, it's, a, it's a question whose answers will be critical to sh shedding light on how we can actually scale up the number of ESOPs in the country. Our goal is to really drill down and try to identify the real barriers that are blocking the expansion of the ESOP in order to hopefully eliminate some of those barriers and see this movement continue to expand. With that, we're going to wrap up the conversation with Dr. Adria Scharf. Adria, thank you so much for everything that you're doing for employee ownership. There are a lot of folks like me who can talk more glibly because of the research that you are <laughs> doing that, that, that really provides the backup. And I hope you'd be kind enough to come back from time to time and let us know what you're doing and what the Rutgers Institute is doing. But your work is very, very important and it's very, very appreciated. Thank you so much, Brett. And I have such appreciation for you and for this podcast. And I would be honored to return anytime. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And with that, we will wrap up today's episode of the podcast. My thanks and gratitude to Dr. Adria Scharf of the Curriculum Library for Employee Ownership, or CLIO, from the online Coursera course, all of it part of the Institute for the Study of Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing, which is part of the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations. And I am also extremely grateful to you, the listener. Thank you so much. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at EO Podcast Network and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. This podcast has been produced by Brett Kiesling for the EO Podcast Network. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Branding and marketing by Bitsy Plus Design. And I'm Bitsy McCann.